Welcome back to another exciting episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'll be your host, Chappie, and let's get started. Alright, today we're going to be going over witches, famous witches, famous witch trials, some witches that are still around today, and different areas from National Geographic known for witchcraft and the dark arts. All right, so without further ado, let's get it right into it. Google defines a witch as a woman thought to have magic powers, especially evil ones, popularly depicted as wearing a black cloak and pointed hat and flying on a broomstick. Well, thank you, Google. <laughs> All right, let's jump right into National Geographic, what they associate with witchcraft and the dark arts. The first location is going to be Chanstonbury Ring in Sussex, England. An ancient earthwork in southern England is said to be the vortex of evil energy created by the devil. In 1987, a devastating hurricane hit southern England, leaving destruction in its wake. On the south downs in the country of West Sussex, it ripped a circle of towering beech trees planted on the base of the Iron Age fort, known as the Chantonbury Ring, which is also the site of two pagan temples. Mysterious and silent, they say that no bird dares sing here. The Chantonbury Ring has a powerful, sinister atmosphere. Some believe that many ley lines, alignments of ancient mystical sites that cross this part of South Downs, produce a vortex of malevolent energy attracting paranormal activity, Satanists, and even the devil himself. According to legend, the ring was created by a devil, by the devil, during the early Christian era. Appalled by the number of pagans converting to the new religion, the devil hatched a plan to drown them. During a wild, windy, and moonless night, he began digging a tr deep trench between a point near the modern-day village of Boinings and the sea. As he clawed out the earth, the soil piled up beside the trench, creating a series of earth mounds. However, the, an old white witch was determined to foil the devil's plan. Placing a sieve in front of the lighted candle in her window, she fooled a rooster into mistaking the diffused light for sunrise. As the rooster crowed, the world woke up and the devil fled. It is said that if on a moonless night, you walk backwards in a counterclockwise direction around the ring seven times without stopping. The devil will appear and offer you a bowl of porridge. If you accept, he will either grant you your dearest wish or take your soul to hell. Oh my goodness. So, what a location to start with. I can already tell from these pictures, these are going to be good stories. The Hellfire Tunnels, West Wacombe, England. In the 18th century, this underground labyrinth gained a reputation for orgies and black magic. In the green folds of the Chiltern Hills in southern England, the mock facade of a Gothic church fronts the network of winding tunnels and secret chambers extending deep into the hillside. In the 18th century, this spooky labyrinth hosted the Hellfire Club, founded by notorious libertine Sir Francis Dashwood. The club, then called the Order of St. Francis of Wacombe, 
celebrated Venus and Bacchus, the Roman gods of love and wine. Its motto was Fet ke tu vultris, or do what thou wilt. The club attracted writers, artists, politicians. Famous guests included Benjamin Franklin, who has a chamber named after him. The hedonism turned to scandal when rumors of the orgies and black magic began to circulate. By this time, phallic symbols decorated the inner temples with, while succubi and incubi, sexual demons, adorned the walls. Below the chapel, Dashwood created an imitation of the river Styx, the river in Greek mythology that souls must cross in order to reach the underworld. After the club's downfall, the tunnels were abandoned until they were open to the public in 1951. Today's visitors can take guided tours. Oof, goodness. Beninhead, Scotland. From the base of the remote cave, a cannibalistic coven preyed on lone locals and travelers. In the 17th century, King James VI of Scotland is said to have led 400 men and a pack of bloodhounds in a hunt of Sonny Bean, the head of an incestuous clan of corpse eaters, guided to the rugged stretch of Ayrshire coast by only victim, by the only victim to have escape Bean's clutches. The king's party combed the caves in the cliffs for several hours before finding the secret hideout. For more than 25 years, Bean and his 46 strong clan are said to have murdered travelers and locals, then pickled and salted their flesh for consumption. Hundreds of people went missing over the years, and discarded limbs were often found washed up on nearby beaches. It is said that an attack on a couple in broad daylight during midsummer Fair finally prompted the king to take action. The husband bravely fought to save his wife's light, life, but then watched helplessly as the clan ripped out his wife's entrails and feasted on her blood. The appearance of a large group of revelers from the fair caused the clan to flee, saving the man from, from the same fate. When the king and his men stormed the cave, they found human body parts hanging from the roof, pickled limbs floating in barrels of vinegar, and clothes, jewelry, and money of the dead strewn on the sandy floor. The clan had taken no chance to escape. The king's men took them to Edinburgh in chains and from there to Leith for execution. The authorities were merciless. The men bled to death from their hands and legs were cut off, while the women were forced to watch the men's terrible torture then be birth, burned alive. Oh my gosh. Not exactly witches, but, you know, some group collaborative efforts for the macabre. All right, let's take a short break, get right back into it after this. Welcome back. We're going to get right into five satanic hotspots in France. Number one, Chateau de Tiffages, Vendy. In the 15th century, Gilles de Reyes, a Breton king or a Breton knight, hired a sorcerer to help him become the wealthiest man in France. Instructed by the sorcerer to sacrifice a child's heart, eyes, and sex organs, de Reyes embarked on killing spree 
becoming one of France's most notorious serial killers. It was not until he was kidnapped, until he kidnapped an important priest, that he was arrested and hanged. Pont Velletri Cohorse. According to local legend, the builder of the 14th century bridge traded his soul for the devil's help in its construction. Just before the last stones were laid, the cunning builder realized there was one thing the devil would never have been able to do. Fetch water for the workman's last mix of mortar in a sleeve. Satan returned empty-handed and the pact was broken. Oxen Province. In 1607, a young girl called Madeline accused a priest in town, Father Louis Jeffridi, of lurid sexual acts. Sent to a convent, she began to see demons, a claim that soon spread to other nuns. Found guilty of demonic activities, Gafradi was burned at the stake. After his execution, Madeline was cured, but in 1642, she herself was accused of witchcraft and sentenced to life in prison. Luden, Father Grandier, a, Jes a Jesuit priest, loved to seduce women. In 1617, the Bishop of Ponters conspired with Sister Jeanne d'Ange to accuse Grandier of immorality and colluding with the devil. Soon after, Grandier was found guilty and burned up at the stake. Protesting his innocence, he told his inquisitors that within 30 days, they too would see God. Many of them died soon after. Severus near Paris. An abandoned church in Avenue de la Division, Le Clerc, is thought to be where the Catholic priest, Abbey Boulian, practiced black magic and infant sacrifice in the mid-19th century. On January 8, 1860, Bullion reported sacrificing one of his own illegitimate children. He collapsed and died of a heart attack in 1893, reputedly cursed by a rival Satanist. Ooh, goodness. Goodness gracious. All right. Huska Castle. Czech Republic. All right, perched on a limestone cliff about 30 miles north of Prague is Huska Castle, an imposing Gothic edifice of mysterious or origins. According to the legend, the castle straddles a bottomless crack in its limestone plinth through which half-animal, half-human creatures rise at night to slaughter local livestock. Traditionally, local villagers would do anything to avoid passing the hellish portal at night. If they came too close, it is said they would turn into the most terrifying demons. The site has no natural fortifications or water source, and there is no record of anyone actually living in the castle when it was first built. Some say the mysterious castle was built to trap the evil within the walls. The hole to hell lies under the thick stone floor of the chapel. Later in the castle's history, it is said that the powerful duke set out to discover the truth behind the evil gateway. Striking a deal with the condemned prisoner, he offered a man a full pardon in exchange for going down in the hole to investigate. Agreeing to the deal, the man was lowered into the opening by a rope. After a long silence, the man suddenly began screaming from deep within the pit. When the duke's men hauled the prisoner back to the surface, his hair had turned white, and he was completely mad. It is said he died soon afterwards. 
Some claim to have seen demonic entities in the chapel and courtyard, accompanied by strange moanings and screams. Sometimes it is said the devil himself appears near the castle on a cha- on a charging black horse. My gosh. Abbey of Thelema. The self-proclaimed Satanist Alistair Crowley created a dark utopia on this island paradise. Alistair Crowley was one of the most famous occultists of the 20th century. A British bisexual and libertarian, he founded a religion called Thelema based on the philosophy of do what thou wilt. He was dubbed the wickedest man in the world by sections of the British press, especially with his Sicilian villa called Abbey of Thelema. Became a center for drug-taking, sexual rituals, and mysterious and mystical practices. Crowley was also an intrepid explorer and mountaineer, and possibly a British secret agent. Crowley borrowed the name from the villa from France... Francois Rebellos novel Gargantua about a lawless monastery where everyone lived according to their own free will. However, Crowley's hedonistic utopia did not last long. In 1923, a 23-year-old Oxford undergraduate named Raoul Loveday died at that villa and was later found to have been poisoned. The man's wife Betty blamed the death on Crowley who was forced who had forced the student to drink the blood of a sacrificial cat when Betty sold her story to the British press rumors about the villa's activities circulated in Italy in 1923 Mussolini expelled Crowley from the country the abbey of Thelema fell into disrepair and has continued to be visited by Satanists the room known as the Chamber of Nightmares, where drug-induced sadomasochistic rites took place, was painted over by local people. In 1955, filmmaker Kenneth Anger uncovered many of the magic symbols and satanic images. They are still visible for those who dare to cross the threshold of this dilapidated place, curious to experience the energy of Crowley's potent black magic. My gosh. All right. In Chile, legend, a sudden scream outside of a house foreshadows a death within the family. The sound it makes is made by a chonchon, a warlock, which is a male witch, that has shape-shifted into an owl-like creature with gray feathers. If there is a sick person in the house, it is believed the chonchon will attack their weakened spirit by sucking their blood until death takes hold. Warlocks are reputed 
to create evil accomplices known as Imbunke, Imbunke from newborn male babies stolen from human couples. To ensure the Imbunke never escape, the warlock deforms the baby by breaking one of its legs and twisting it over its head. A magic ointment is then applied to the child's back to, project, to produce a thick coat of black hair that will protect the creature from freezing, even in the deepest winter. Destined to guard the warlock's cave, the Mbunke lets out blood-curdling screams to scare off approaching strangers. It is said that anyone who sees an Mbunke will be frozen to the spot forever. Female witches, or brujas, can transform into birds or animals. They can place people under or creatures in a trance, cause illness, death, accidents, murder, and even rise and lower the sea level. Apprentice Brujas cleanse themselves of Christian rites and influences by standing beneath a waterfall for 40 days. They must then kill a loved one and make a pact sign in blood with the devil for the deliverance of their soul. Only then can a witch enter a coven and draw from the power of the devil himself. Oof. So all of that is from a Chilean legend. So that is not a how-to, <laughs> if anyone is wondering. All right, Rose Hall, Montego Bay, Jamaica. One of Jamaica's finest plantation houses, Rose Hall, is steeped in stories of witchcraft. They concern a woman named Annie Palmer, born in England but raised in Haiti by an old Creole nurse who taught her witchcraft. On reaching adulthood, Annie moved to Jamaica and married John Palmer, the owner of Rose Hall Plantation. Within months of the marriage, Annie started taking slaves to her bed. One day, her husband caught her with a lover and beat her with a riding crop. In revenge, Annie murdered him by poisoning his coffee. He th she then inherited Rose Hall, and her reign of terror began. It is said that Annie murdered any slaves, lovers, or suitors who displeased or bored her. She was Her cruel behavior, coupled with the rumors she dabbled in voodoo, eventually earned her the name the White Witch of Rose Hall. But Annie's invincibility was not to last. She made the fatal mistake of play, placing a curse on Millicent, the granddaughter of a local witch doctor. At the time, Annie was trying to win the love of the English bookkeeper named Robert Rutherford, who loved Millicent. Annie cursed Millicent with a withering disease. Supporting, supported by a mob of slaves, the witch doctor strangled Annie. Annie and her possessions were buried on Rose Hall Estate. According to a voodoo ritual, was carried out to lay her ghost, but it was not completed according to strict protocol. Annie's demonic spirit is said to haunt Rose Hall to this day. Subsequent owners suffered early and tragic deaths, and the cursed house was left abandoned for more than 150 years. Key Voodoo Haunts in the Caribbean Port a la Prince, or Port au Prince, Haiti. In the home of voodoo, the god of death, Jeed, is said to stand at the crossroads to the afterworld. Represented as an undertaker, his clothes are black and he wears dark glasses, while his followers are disguised as corpses. Some voodoo sorcerers own a magic stick called a Coco McKay 
that walks by itself and is sent out to perform vengeful deeds. Vote Forks or Beau Fort St. Lucia. Practitioners of Obeya, a form of voodoo found on St. Lucia, can bestow authority and riches as well as pain and death, but their power can backfire. One legend tells of a sorcerer who, in the guise of a spirit, used magical dust to drug a man and make love to his wife. One night, the dust failed to work, and the husband plunged a knife into the spirit, killing the sorcerer. Bridgetown, Barbados. In Obeya and Voodoo beliefs, a person has two souls, a good soul and an earthly one. In death, the good soul goes to heaven while the earthly one stays in the coffin for three days. If the earthly soul escapes, it becomes a harmful entity known as a duppy. In Barbados, duppies are repelled by walking backwards or hanging herbs or funeral clothes in a window. Havana, Cuba. When a man is seriously ill in Cuba, the god Isu appears to demand his body and soul. To fool the god, the Obeya witch makes a life-size puppet of the dying man, which the man's wife dresses in her husband's clothing, and then takes to the cemetery at night. Seeing the woman crying over a grave, Isu is convinced the man is dead and already in the underworld. Laudat Dominica A devil woman known as La Diablis lives alone in this village, plotting revenge on cheating husbands. She hides behind trees on lonely roads and wait, waiting to catch them. Although she is beautiful, there is something that betrays her, her cloven hooves. If they are spotted, she must fly towards the safety of Titu Gorge before she is turned into a hideous old hag. Oof. My gosh. All right, let's take a short break and get right back at it after this. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, welcome back. Just a few more from National Geographic, and then we'll go to some other articles. Uh, so this one takes place in York, Pennsylvania, called Hellum. Deep in the woods beside the small town, an old mental asylum stands on an ominous portal to hell. In the 19th century, an isolated 
mental asylum stood in the woods of Helm, not far from Toad Road, now Trout Run Road. Mentally ill patients from all over Pennsylvania were sent here. They were bound in straitjackets and locked in cells. Sadistic doctors made the place a living hell. Over time, the gossip sprang up about the local community that satanic practices took place at the hospital. When the building caught fire one day, local firefighters arrived too late to stop the inferno. Many of the patients burned to death on the upper floors of the hospital, while hundreds of others fled. Some of the dangerous inmates disappeared into the forest as the fire spread. When the fire was extinguished, officials hunted down the escaped inmates, but believing the escaped inmates were possessed by the devil, they were butchered many, many of those that were found. After the tragedy, the townspeople changed the name of the road and tried to put the matter behind them. Many say Trout Run Road and the woods are cursed. Seven barriers along the path to the asylum erected to keep people out are reputed to mark seven invisible gateways to hell. It is said that a sense of evil around the fifth gate is palpable and that whoever manages to pass all seven gates will not... Will not will stand not only on the ruins of a mental hospital, but at a portal to help itself. Alright. Tar River, coming from North Carolina. During the Revolutionary War, a young grain merchant from England opened a mill on the side of the Tar River. Sympathetic to the cause of the colonists and aspirations of a new nation, he provided the local militia with supplies of flour. In 1781, British redcoats attacked the mill, which they knew to be the in the hands of the rebels. Fearing for his life, the miller called upon his knowledge of a local legend about a banshee, a terrifying, vengeful spirit that was the harbinger of death. The miller cried out that the banshee would haunt and curse anyone who killed him. The soldier laughed and threw him in the river. As he sank to the bottom, a blood-curdling scream echoed downstream. The soldiers set up quarters in the mill, but remained fearful of the miller's curse. One night, the banshee appeared in the room where the men slept. Hypnotized by her ghastly spell, all but one man followed her back to the river, where they fell into the water and drowned. According to the legend, if you hear the banshee's wail, death is imminent. Devil's Tramping Ground from North Carolina. The devil is said to pace his barren circle, devising ways to destroy the world and bring down mankind. In the woods near Harper Crossroads, close to Bennett, a barren path of land has long been subject of conjecture. Nothing has grown within the 40-foot circle of land for hundreds of years. Objects disappear without a trace, D dogs howl unaccountably, and there is a pervading sense of malevolence. It is said that any object placed on the path around the circle will be thrown out into the shrubs. According to local legend, this is the spot where the devil himself rises from the underworld to pace in eternal circles, thinking up evil plans to destroy the world and cursing those in power on the earth. Few people have dared to spend the night on the devil's tramping ground, but in the 1960s, two teenage boys decided to discover the truth about the spot while camping there. While they cracked Crouched inside their tent, the wind outside turned into a gale and then spiraling typhoon. As it intensified, the tent was ripped from the ground. Convinced it was the work of the devil, the boys fled. 
All right, welcome back. We're going to jump right on over to some historic uh, witch trials. Uh, this one comes from history.com, and it's Beyond Salem, Six Lesser Known Witch Trials. Valais, Switzerland, France, in 1428 to 1447. Often considered to be the first in Europe, the Valais trials began in French-speaking southern region of Valais and spread to German-speaking Wallace. The trials claimed at least 367 victims. The actual toll may be higher, which just as many men as women killed. It all began in August 1428 when delegates from several different districts demanded investigations into any accused witches or sorcerers. They established a rule that if any single person was accused of witchcraft three times, they were to be arrested. Once arrested, there was no way to escape. Those that confessed were burned at the stake. Those who didn't were tortured until they did confess. While the trials were poorly documented, there were few records that remain from a local clerk of the court, Jeanne's friend. Trier, Germany from 1581 to 1593. One of the largest witch trials in European history started in rural diocese of Trier in 1581, eventually reaching the city itself six years later. The motives behind the massive witch purging was likely political. Wanting to prove his loyalty to the Jesuits, the newly appointed Archbishop Johann von Schoenberg ordered a purge of three groups of nonconformists. Protestants, Jews, and witches. Very few of those accused of witchcraft were ever released. Between 1587 and 1593, 368 of the accused from 22 villages were burned alive, almost all confessing under torture. Almost a third of victims were nobility and held positions in government or local administration, including judges, burgomeisters, counselors, canons, and parish priests. Number three, North Berwick, Scotland, 1590 to 1592. When King James VI of Scotland sailed to Copenhagen to marry Princess Anne of Denmark, a severe coastal storm forced him to land in Norway and take refuge for, for several weeks. The storm was blamed on witchcraft, which brewed the king's obsession with eliminating the practice. He became so obsessed he even penned a book, Demonology, endorsing witch hunting. The first of fall victim was Gilly Duncan, a court accused of using healing cures and subject to prolonged torture. Duncan confessed to having a contract with the devil. She was burned at the stake for her crime. In total, 70 people were accused of witchcraft, including several members of Scottish nobility. Although the actual number of those killed remains unknown, these events had such profound effect that it it's believed Shakespeare's adapted parts of the trial, including torture rituals, into Macbeth. The North Berwick witch trials were the first major trials in Scotland, but many followed, claiming the estimated of 3,000 to 4,000 lives between 1560 to 1707. Fool the Germany, 1603 to 1606. After returning from 20-year exile from his post, Balthazar von Dernbach, the Scottish or the Prince Abbot of the Fulda Monastery, 
joined the ongoing effort of the Catholic Counter-Reformation to thwart perceived religious liberalism. Dernbach launched an aggressive investigation into witchcraft and sorcery to purge the city of Fulda of improper things. The well-known victim was a pregnant woman named Murga Bien, accused of murdering her second husband, their children, and a family member of her husband's employer. She was tortured and forced to confess. Found guilty, Bien was burned at the stake. The witch hunts were stopped upon the death of Dernbach in 1605. Gosh, 1600s and the 1500s. They were just not great for witch hunts. They were not a great time to be alive. You just be accused of being a witch. <sighs> Pendle, England, 1612 to 1634. Taking place in Pendle Hill, a poor, lawless region in Lancaster, Lancashire, Lancashire. Lancashire, England, where begging and, and magical healing were common. These trials were among the most famous and well-documented in the 17th century. The previous decade had been rife with fear of witchcraft, which only magnified by the obsession of King James VI, now King James I of England, in purging his lands of witches and sorcerers. Required to report any who refused to attend English church or take communion, the local justice of the peace, Roger Nowell, was also tasked with the investigation claims of witchcraft. One such claim made of local Halifax peddler who accused a local woman, Allison Device, of giving him a stroke through witchcraft. Device freely confessed to the to the crime and implicated many of her family members. Other locals implicated their families only to later be accused themselves. Altogether, 12 were accused of using witchcraft to murder 10 people. 11 of the accused went to trial, nine women and two men, and 10 were found guilty and hanged. Torkishire, Sweden, 1674 to 1675. The largest witch trial in Swedish history, one of the largest mass killings of witches in recorded history, saw 71 accused witches, including 65 females, or roughly one-fifth of all females in the region, beheaded and burned in a single day. The bloodshed began when Minister Laurentis Christophori Hornus of Yitterlanus was instructed to investigate witchcraft within his parish. He ordered two young boys to stand at the doors and identify witches by the invisible devil's mark on their forehead as they walked into church. Many of the dismay, much to the dismay of Hornus, one of the boys identified the minister's wife, a situation which was quickly hushed up. The accused were subjected to abducting children, taking them to Satan's Sabbath, Eight festivals celebrated by Wiccans and Neo-Pagans at Blaku, a meadow popular in Swedish folklore where the devil held court. Relying mostly on children, testimonies were extracted through whippings, forced bathings in frozen lakes, or by threats to bake the children in an oven. There were very few of these trials, and primary source were recorded 60 years after the conclusion by the grandson of the minister, Corneas, who recorded his grandmother's eyewitness account to the proceedings. The trials were thought to have been shaken 
shaky legitimacy since the commission and local courts failed to report the death sentences to higher court before carrying them out. Oh my gosh. All these people died and it's just like the from the word of somebody else like oh yeah they're a witch they gave me a stroke and then if you denied it you just got tortured until you confessed so it's like a death sentence i don't know it's very suspect we have a very suspect uh history all right, let's take a short break and be right back into it after this. All right, welcome back. We're now going to look at Top Tens, which has 10 infamous witch trials on here for us to read. For centuries, many men and even more women have been tortured and executed because of the belief in malevolent witchcraft. It is a very dark period of human history, and sadly, it still continues to this day in many countries around the world. Much of the fear about witches and witchcraft stems from lack of knowledge and paranoia. When something bad happens, people look for ways to explain it. In the past, without another explanation, people have blamed problems both big and small on witchcraft. Once they believed the problem was caused by witchcraft, it was simply a matter of finding a scapegoat. Sadly, this led to terrible forms of torture where people falsely confessed and were executed in brutal fashions. It is estimated that 50,000 to 200,000 people died throughout history because they were a victim of a witch hunt or trial. Number 10. Hypatia. Perhaps the oldest witch trial on record is that of the death that of the death of Greek intellect Hypatia, who was born around 355 AD in Alexandria. Her father was Theon of Alexandria, a well-respected mathematician and astronomer, and he taught his daughter math and science. As an adult, Hypatia was leading mathematician, and astro astronomer, and teacher. As for her religious beliefs, her philosophy was Neoplatonism, which is considered pagan. Oh my goodness. The problem was that Hypatia lived in a time where there was a lot of unrest and disagreement between the city's main three religions, Christianity, Judaism, and paganism. After Cyril became Archbishop of Alexandria, the atmosphere took a turn for the worse. Hypatia was accused of witchcraft, which stemmed from her pagan beliefs. In 415, while riding her chariot to work, Hypatia was pulled off of it into the street by a mob of angry Christians. She was attacked with abalone shells and flayed alive. Her remains were then set on fire and her works were destroyed as Christians tried to remove her from history. Cyril was later canonized as a saint. Today, Hypatia is considered one of the first famous witch to be punished by Christian authorities. She is also remembered as a powerful symbol of feminism and a martyr of science in the face of ignorance. Number nine, Angel de la Barth. Supposedly, Angel de la Barth was born around 1230 in Toulouse, France. She was a noblewoman and a Gnostic Christian which was a sect that was considered heretical 
heretical, heretical by the Catholic Church. In 1275, she was accused of having sexual relations with Satan, and she was impregnated by him. She gave birth to a baby that was that had the head of a wolf and a serpent's tail. It ate human flesh, and De La Barth stole infants to feed it. When De La Barth was arrested, she tortured and confessed that the accusations were true. She was sentenced to death and was burned alive. The problem with the De La Barth trial is that historians aren't sure the trial even happened because there's no mention of it in the Toulouse records. Also at the time, it wasn't illegal to have sexual relations with demons. But if Angel de la Barth was executed for witchcraft, she would have been the first person in Europe to suffer that fate as of 1275. Wow. Number eight. Petronia de Meath. One of the earliest group accusations of witchcraft happened in Kilkenny, Ireland in 1324. The Bishop of Ossory accused Lady Alice Kitterler of sorcery, demonism, and murder. According to the Bishop, Kitterler became rich by killing her former husbands through witchcraft. The Bishop also ordered Kitterler and her confidant, Petronia Demith to be tortured. When Demith was tortured, she said that both she and Cotiller were witches. She said that they could apply an ointment to a beam of wood and it would give them the ability to fly. After the confession, Demith was forced to publicly admit that Cotiller and her followers were witches. Cotiller managed to get out of Ireland, taking Demith's son Basil with her and avoid execution. Demeath and some of her servants were burned at the stake, while others got off light by just being whipped or tortured. Wow. You know, they do say that they used to take uh, psychedelic-type substances and put them on brooms or on pieces of wood and put them in between their legs and it would be absorbed, and they would basically trip, which, in essence, you know, kind of like flying, but not really. So maybe that's where that came from. Number seven, the Kelmsworth Witches. Under the reign of Queen Elizabeth, there were three major acts written to punish witches. The second of these acts was passed in 1563. It made summoning of an evil spirit whether it did harm or not, illegal with the mandatory jail term. If the spirit or spell led to someone's death, then the witch could be executed. The first people to be tried under this law were three women living in the town of Hatfield Pavero, Agnes Waterhouse, and her daughter Joan Waterhouse, and Elizabeth Francis. What connected all three women was a white cat with black marks on it. One of the women accused, Elizabeth Francis, said she was taught witchcraft at age 12 by her grandmother, who told her to renounce God and give her blood to the devil. Her grandmother also gave her a cat named Satan as a familiar, which was an animal that is enabled with supernatural powers, and it helps the witch. Elizabeth held on to that cat for 15 to 16 years and then grew tired of it. She traded the cat to Agnes Waterford for a cake. And Frances taught Agnes everything her mother taught her about witchcraft. 
Elizabeth was tried first, then she confessed and was given a year in prison. Agnes went on to trial next, and she also confessed to a number of crimes, including bewitching people and killing them. She also confessed to killing her daughter, her neighbor's livestock. During her trial, a 12-year-old girl testified that Agnes had, had cursed her. According to the girl, after being cursed, a large black dog started terrorizing her. The testimony was damning, and Agnes was sentenced to death. Agnes's daughter, Joan Waterford, pleaded for mercy and was found not guilty. On July 29, 1566, 63-year-old Agnes Waterhouse was hanged, and she became the first person executed in England for witchcraft. Also in the end, the reputation of witchery never escaped Elizabeth Francis. She was arrested twice more for witchcraft and was hanged eventually in 1578. Number six, the Pendle Witches. In the late 1500s and early 1600s, paranormal, paranoia was high in England. The Guy Fawkes gunpowder plot had failed in 1605. King James I was a strong, prominent proponent of the witch hunts and even wrote a book on the topic called Demonology, as we all know. Uh, the case started in 12... Or 1612 in Lancashire, a young woman named Allison Device, as we've already read about. I'm going to read this article about it because there's more information. All right. A young woman named Allison Device was accused of witchcraft. The son of a peddler said that Allison cursed his father and died as a result of it, so Allison was arrested. Allison confessed, but also accused neighbors of witchcraft. Allison said Anne Whittle and her daughter Anne Redfern had cursed four people and they had died. Whittle and Redfern in turn accused Allison's grandmother, a woman known for her cunning, named Demdike, of being a witch. Then on Good Friday, when all good Catholics should be at church, Allison's mother, Elizabeth, threw a party. There were rumors that it was a gathering of witches, and most of the people at the party were arrested. In total, nine women and two men were charged with witchcraft, and the key witness was Jeanette Device, Elizabeth's nine-year-old sister. Jeanette testified the accused were witches. After a two-day trial, ten of the accused, including Jeanette's sister, brother, mother, and grandmother, were all found guilty and hanged. One other accused died before trial, and only one accused person was found not guilty. This case is incredibly influential because writings from the trial were used in reference handbooks for magistrates, including magistrates of the American colonies. It basically encouraged authorities to use testimony of children in witchcraft trials. As for Jeanette, this type of testimony would come back to haunt her in 1633 when she was accused of being a witch by a 10-year-old boy. Serves her right. She got her whole family killed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Talk about the karma on that one. My gosh. All right. I digress. Number five, the Poppenheimers. The Poppenheimers, Paulus, 57, his wife, Anna, 59, and their three sons were vagrants living in Bavaria in 1600. They were pitiful living creatures by cleaning privies, which are similar to outhouses. 
In February 1600s, they were arrested on vague, petty charges, and unfortunately, the Poppenheimers, the Duke of Bavaria, wanted to use the family as an example to stop the spread of highway robbery and murder, so they were tortured while being interrogated. When they were... Ten-year-old Hansel said the family were witches. Soon the rest of the family started to admit to witchcraft, like flying on sticks. On July 29, 1600, the family was executed. First they were tortured, mutilated in front of a crowd. Then Hansel was forced to watch his family be burnt to death. And then he was burned alive himself. What is amazing about this witch trial is that while it was terribly gruesome, incredibly detailed records of the torture, confessions, and execution were saved. It's also creation a new law in Bavaria. The witchcraft was a serious problem, and extreme measures were needed to wipe it out. Oof. All right, number four, the Paisley Witches. Like too many other trials on this list, the trial of the Paisley Witches was started by the accusation of a child. In this case, it was 11-year-old Christian Shaw, who supposedly became possessed in 1696, and she accused seven or eight people in town of Paisley of bewitching her. As the year went on, witnesses claimed they saw Shaw fly, and she would cough up strange things like coal and hair. In early 1697, over 30 people were accused. Four women and three men were sentenced to death. Out of the seven, only six would make to their execution. One of the men con committed suicide in his cell. The rest of them garroted and their bodies were burned. Finally, their ashes were placed in a grave that was sealed with a horseshoe. Now, this could have been another genetic, albeit sad, generic albeit sad witch trial but as one of the women agnes naismith was being accused she cursed the townspeople of paisley and their descendants as time went on the legend of the witch witches grew and it said that if the grave was ever disturbed then the people of paisley would be cursed and in 1960s the very thing happened during construction the horseshoe was removed and in an amazing coincidence the town's economy took a downturn in 19 or 2012 it had the most empty shops on any high street in the united kingdom as for christian shaw she and her mother tortured europe or toured europe and in holland they were found out about the process of making fine thread they smuggled pieces of spinning machine used to make the thread to paisley and started a thread company that became one of the main industries of the town my gosh Number three, the Trier Witch Trials. One of the largest witch trials in Europe history started in 1581 in rural diocese of Trier before spreading to the city. It was led by Archbishop of Trier, Jean van Stroberg, who ruled with tyranny and cruelty. When he took power in 1581, he ordered the purging of Jews, Protestants, and witches. Do, do, do. It is also important that 368 executions were only recorded in 22 villages. The figure doesn't include executions in rural areas, so it's believed that the real number of executions under his watch is actually higher. Gillis Garnier. Many of the people of this list are victims of paranormal, 
paranoia and hysteria, but Gillis Garnier might be the only person on this list who committed real crimes, and his crimes were much worse than any imagined offenses. From his accounts at times, at the time, Gillis Garnier was the reclusive loner living in the woods around Dole. Despite being a solitary man, he married in 1572. The problem was that Garnier was ill-equipped to provide for his family because he wasn't, wasn't a very good hunter. That's when Garnier started hunting something else entirely, human children. The first murder happened around September 29, 1572, when Garnier killed a, six, or a 10-year-old girl, supposedly while in the form of a wolf, and brought some of the flesh home for his wife to eat. Throughout autumn, more children, both boys and girls between the ages of 9 and 12, were found murdered and mutilated. This caused a stir in the town who believed it was a werewolf who was committing the murders. People thought it was a werewolf because the number of murder scenes people happened to walk by seeing and see humanoid wolf being who would run off into the woods once it realized it had been seen. Then in January 1573, there was one last murder. This time the villagers heard the child screaming and the sound of a wolf. They ran to the scene and witnessed a wolf run away from the child, but as it did, it turned into a human form and people recognized it was Garnier. Garnier was arrested, put on the rack, and confessed to killing the children and eating them if they entered the forest. At his trial, more than 50 people testified, and he was found guilty of lycanthropy, lycanthropy and witchcraft. He and his wife were burned at the stake in January 8, 1573. Today is unclear if Garnier was actually a serial killer or a cannibal, or if he was an innocent man who was just another victim of witch trial mentality. Oh my gosh. Lycanthropy? Like werewolves? Are we serious? Might have to do an episode on that. But I digress. Alright, there's one more thing on this list, and that's the Salem Witch Trials. By far the most famous trials in history are those of the Salem Village, Massachusetts. The infamous period in American history started in January 1692, when nine-year-old Betty Paris and 11-year-old Abigail Williams began to have fits where they would violently contort their bodies, and they would have outbursts of screams that couldn't be controlled. Betty and Abigail, who were the daughter and niece of the minister of the Salem Village, Samuel Parrish, were taken to the doctor, and his diagnosis was witchcraft. A short time later, other girls in the village started to show the same bizarre symptoms as Betty and Abigail. In late February, three women were arrested for witchcraft. They were Tibeta, a Caribbean slave owned by the parish minister, Sarah Good, who was a homeless beggar, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly and poor woman. At their trial, their accusers appeared in court and they were unable to control their spasms, contortions, and screaming. Osborne and Good denied they were witches, but Tibeta admitted to witchcraft. It is possible she thought she might save her life if she told the villagers about other witches, so she accused other townswomen. In turn, the women Tibeta accused pointed their fingers at other townspeople for being witches. With so many accusations of witchcraft mounting, a special court was called the Court, the court of Oyer and Tominer. 
The first case that was decided against was Bridget Bishop. She was hanged on June 10th, 1692, on a place that would be called Gallows Hill. In July, five more people were executed, including Sarah Good. In August, five more people were executed, and in September, a further eight were hanged. Besides 18 executions, seven people, including Sarah Osborne, died in prison. Finally, a man named Giles Corey was crushed to death with stones after refusing to plea at his arraignment. Tibeta, who is particularly responsible for spreading the rumors, was never indicted for witchcraft. By October, public support of witch hunts had waned and the court of Oyer and Terminer was dissolved. By 1693, all the people who were accused of witchcraft were pardoned by the governor, and on 1711, the Massachusetts colony passed legislation that restored good names of the people who lost their lives, and they also provided financial compensation to their families. Wow. Wow. So basically, like, I mean, that's a very dark long history of you know paranoia hysteria uh basically killing people based on hearsay um and we'll get into a few in a minute that are actual um you know witches but whoo Definitely not during the early times that we just read about. All right, let's take a short break. All right, welcome back. We're going to jump over to an article from LearnReligions.com. It's Appalachian Folk Magic. Um, an article written by Patty Win- Wingington. Many of today's modern witchcraft traditions are rooted in the folk magic customs of days gone by. In America's Appalachian Mountains regions, there's a long storied tradition of magic that today is referred to as granny magic or granny witchcraft. Passed down from one generation to the next, women of the hills used a combination of religious texts, traditional herbal medicine, and down-home remedies to treat their neighbors for a variety of complaints. Key takeaways, granny magic, Appalachian granny magic. Although granny magic is a relatively new term, the tradition and magical practices of Appalachia have a long history. Many practitioners in the mountains use combination of faith healing and traditional folk magic. Granny magic is experiencing a resurgence in popularity as people with mountain backgrounds embrace their heritage. So you might ask, what is Appalachian granny magic? or witchcraft. The history of Appalachia itself is a history of granny witchcraft tradition, although the name is relatively new. The customs go back a long time. A combination of folk magic, faith healing, and superstitions, granny magic was was often the only source for aid for people in remote, isolated regions. As European settlers arrived in the colonies during the 18th century, they brought with them traditional folk magic and healing modalities of their home countries. Primarily women, these healers used the concepts they'd learned in Scotland, England, and Ireland. 
Once settled in, they met their Native American neighbors who taught them about plants, roots, and leaves indigenous to the mountains of North Carolina, Tennessee, and beyond. They also blended their practice with German immigrants who arrived in Pennsylvania and began migrating south and west. Soon they began incorporating the knowledge brought to the mountains by people of African descent, escaping slavery in the south. Traditional granny magic included a lot of different practices. Dousing the practice for looking for water with a forked stick or a length of copper was a valuable skill to have if you or your neighbor needs to dig a new well. Practitioners often tended to the needs of the women. They worked as midwives and assisted in the birth of new babies, but could also be counted upon to provide herbal remedies if a young woman didn't want to become pregnant. In areas that rarely had access to professional medical care, the granny witch worked as a healer, crafting poultices and salves and teas with curative properties. Divination could also be done in the remains of tea and coffee grounds in the bottom of a cup. In 1908, John C. Campbell went to Appalachia to conduct a study of living conditions in the mountain. In the mountains. The results was a book called The Southern Highlander and His Homeland. According to Campbell, one may become a grandmother young in the mountains if she has survived the labor and tribulation of her younger days, has gained a freedom and a place of irres irresponsible authority in the home hardly rivaled by the men of the family. In sickness, she is the first to be consulted, for she is generally something of an herb doctor, and her advice is sought by the young people of half the countryside in all things, from a love affair to putting a new web in the loom. Because the religious environment of Appalachia, Appalachian region, in which nearly everyone was staunchly Protestant, most of the people practicing what we today call granny magic would have disagreed with what they were doing was witchcraft. In fact, many charms and spells included invocations of psalms, prayers, and verses of the Bible. Folk magic and healing remedies. Many of the granny magic traditions of the mountains share some common ground with the folk magic found from other parts of the world. Depending on what part of Appalachia someone lives in, the traditions that have been handed down from one generation to another a practitioner of granny magic might follow a variety of practices. Beth Ward writes, The Long Tradition of Folk Healing Among Southern Appalachian Women. These women knew that catnip tea or red alder tea kept infants from getting hives. They prescribed stewed down calmus root to help soothe colic. They put sulfur in the soles of the shoes to help ease flu symptoms. And if someone came to them with a bad burn, they knew blowing smoke and chanting the right words could talk the fire out. In addition to magical traditions, many of the granny magic of the past, granny women of the past, served as healers and midwives. The granny woman would arrive at the home of a mother in labor with a bag of herbs, roots, and leaves. She would use these to help the mother deliver a child safely and then might recite a verse from the Bible or a protective charm to keep the mother and baby healthy, especially in the time of high infant and perinatal mortality. Because the mountain dwellers were often nowhere near a doctor's office and the cost of a professional medical treatment was prohibitive, 
it's often fell to the local women to provide health care for their neighbors, setting bones, treating fevers, and caring for the terminally ill. Granny Magic Today Today, there's a resurgence and in interest of the Granny Magic tradition, although it never really went away in Appalachia. As more people in the mountains try to hold on to their traditional customs, Granny Magic is becoming popular once more, although it's unlikely that it will ever go mainstream. After all, the cultural context and awareness of Appalachian life is a key component of the practice. Our people don't always call this magic, and they don't always call it witchcraft. It's just what you do. If you grew up in the South, it's everywhere, but people don't always name it, not even among themselves. All right, that's one article. Another article from mountainx.com by Susan Foster is talking about a practitioner. Byron Ballard keeps Appalachian, Appalachian folk magic practices alive. Known as Asheville's Village Witch, Byron Ballard practices what she calls Hill Folk Kodu, a form of Appalachian folk magic. Ballard came by hoodoo naturally. Growing up in poor community in the mountains of western North Carolina, where hoodoo was practiced, she laments that the practice is disappearing. Local hill folk are no longer practicing hoodoo, but within living memory. But it's within living memory. There's a kind of sadness that the culture of the hill folk is fading. Voodoo is different than voodoo, she explains, even though the words sound alike. Voodoo originated in Haiti and follows the West African Yoruban religious tradition. Hoodoo, on the other hand, is a non-religious practice with cross-cultural roots. It grew out of the interactions between three cultural groups. The Scots-Irish, who immigrated to western North Carolina, the indigenous Cherokee, and the Pennsylvania Dutch-Germans. Who, were, who migrated to the area through the Shinoa Valley in Virginia. Ballard goes on to say that the immigrants from Europe fleeing religious persecution settled in isolated mountain coves and gave them privacy and the freedom they sought. There was a hard scrabble way of life, but it gave them independence, she says. In the 1930s, when the textile mills moved into the area, the culture began to shift from agricultural to industrial. The money was better, but it took away the independent streak of the mountain people, who were selling just enough of their cash crop to buy coffee and other goods when they, they couldn't grow. With contact from outside people, their folk practices began to erode, she continues. I call myself a forensic folklorist, says Ballard, because I am excavating the practices from older generations. She aims to preserve what she can of the traditional folk practices, and her book, Stobs and Dishwater, Ditchwater, is the result of her research into Southern Highlands roots and its practices. Although Ballard admits she is attempting to dispel the hillbilly and redneck stereotypes in her book, she prefers hill folk to hillbilly. She ne nevertheless reclaims them. I am totally a redneck. I grew up wild and poor in the country, understanding that violence is a way to solve problems. 
I am stubborn and willful, and I hate authority. I, I'm always having to suppress my tendencies towards violence. As the hillfolk culture is thinning, Ballard says it is also becoming gentrified by outlanders, the affluent people who move into the area. The outsiders are hungry for folk traditions that feed them spiritually and are willing to appropriate any of the practices for their own benefit, she says. But she calls this process of stripping away pieces of the local culture by outsiders cultural strip mining. The culture itself gains nothing, but is in fact left weaker by the exchange, she says, comparing it to mountaintop removal and clear-cutting. Ballard confesses she is torn about whether it's better to let the cultural practice die with the people who practice them or to pass them on to the larger world, which may be able to use them for spiritual and environmental purposes. Although she's excavating a dying culture, she is also actively practicing it, relying on what she learned as a child. Like the cove doctor of her forebears, Ballard carrying on the tradition of workings or magical spells to help people heal and get what they want. She gives an example of working she might do to help someone get a job. It could require dressing a candle with particularly potent oil and having the person burn it while focusing their intention on getting a new job. Ballard asks, adds that she tells the person to keep looking for a job meanwhile. This is definitely a belt and suspenders type of magic, she says. Most people come to her for most people come to her for help want healing work. She notes healing is a big thing. The culture we live in is diseased. Hoodoo can help one on one basis. She uses herbs or yarbs for the healing of physical ailments, noting that they are often more effective than allopathic remedies. Ballard tells the story of her daughter who saw many doctors to get rid of a wart. None of the treatments she received was effective. Finally, she tried bloodroot, an indigenous herb, and the wart went away. Many people in the mountains are known for doing disease-specific healing. Ballard reports, I had a great aunt who could rub a wart or a mole between her fingers and it would disappear. She says the whole time she would say something like, I don't know why people think I can do this, and in three days it would be gone. A characteristic of folk magic, Ballard continues, is that practitioners deny that they have the ability to do the healing, perhaps out of humility, acknowledging the power is merely passing through them. She points out that other hill folk use a different remedy to remove warts, wrapping the affected area in a dirty dish rag, then counting or saying the Lord's Prayer, following, followed by burying the dish rag off the property. Ballard says, we often don't know why traditional folk remedies work. She gives the examples of the catnip tea, which is given to infants to pre prevent hives. One theory of how this works, she explains, is that after some of the tea is given to the child, the mother drinks the rest of it. Since it's saporific, the mother is more relaxed, which helps her produce milk. As a result, the child is healthier for being better nourished. Often Ballard is called upon to do love spells, but she always refuses. The problem, she says, is that they, they work. And sometimes the person asking for the spell ends up not being as interested as they thought they were, 
or they draw a person to them in an unhealthy way, such as stalking. Although hoodoo is not a spiritual or religious practice per se, Ballard notes that it can often involve a spiritual or religious overlay. She says that although there are religious-specific pieces, such as reading a part of the Bible to stop the flow of blood, which I have mentioned in other episodes, uh, hoodoo works regardless of the lens being used. Religion can be an important part of the cultural practice, she says, but utilizing the energy, the earth energy is what works. It just depends on how you access it. Hoodoo is about using earth energies in a quest for personal agency. It's all about moving your po- position in the world to where you want it to be. Ballard points out that folk magic practices were developed by cultures in the old world that lacked a sense of agency. When you live in a feudal system, you don't have a lot of access to justice or healing. Their practices became a form of peasant medicine or psychology. When folk magic practitioners were brought to southern Appalachia, they took hold there as well because they were helped they helped provide a sense of personal agency or justice for an impoverished mountain dweller. The ability to access justice is thin unless you have the money and time, she says, and the hill folk had neither. Acknowledging the issues of class and economics in the discussion of hill folk magic honors the people who developed and practice it, who are either our literal blood ancestors or our spiritual and practice ancestors. It honors them to say that they were not the people of great means for whom personal agency was easy. Ballard continues the tradition of using hoodoo to bring about justice. I don't work for peace. I work for justice, she said. I believe, and I think tribal people in Europe believed, that when you have justice, peace is a byproduct of that. All right. Take a short break and wrap it up after this. All right. So in this episode, I captured some of the history of witch trials, some of the historic places around, you know, the world that have, you know, witchcraft and dark arts spots related to, you know, hills or villages or stuff like that. I even mentioned something a little bit about Appalachian Hill magic or granny magic. Uh, keep in mind, this no, in no way encompasses all uh, witchcraft or all belief systems within that. Uh, we didn't even touch things like Wicca or paganism or anything that anybody actually practices. Um, I know several people that are full-fledged Christians, and they also do witchcraft as part of their practice in everyday life. So I didn't even cover that side of it, and it's because there's not a lot of um, articles that are not specific-specific generalities, and I didn't want to mess any of that up. Um, If anybody knows more about that and would like me to cover it on a later episode, please feel free to message me. Um, But yeah, I just did not feel like I had enough research or knowledge to cover that in today's episode. With that being said, thank you for being here today. 
If you would like to connect with us, please join our Facebook page at Paranormal Stories. Spooky Shiz is in parentheses. Please join our page there. Uh, you can message me personally if you have a story, um, a paranormal story, or would like to discuss more about the witches. Um, please just message me there. Um, and stay spooky, my friends. Bye.